It's a beautiful day and a fine time for healing. Podcast host Randy Fine, a narcissistic abuse expert and the author of the groundbreaking book, Close Encounters of the Worst Kind, and the captivating memoir, Cliff Edge Road, invites you into her sanctuary, a place where your physical, emotional, and spiritual well-being are all that matter. So put your feet up, relax, and enjoy today's show. And now, here's Randy. Good morning. Thank you for tuning in to listen to A Fine Time for Healing. I am your show host, Randy Fine. Today's special guest, Dr. Robert Brooks, but he likes to be called Bob, is here to discuss child rearing. He will talk about the seven important instincts that have evolved through multiple generations of parents and caregivers across tens of thousands of years, how they have raised children to become successful adults. The seven are intuitive optimism, intrinsic motivation, compassionate empathy, simultaneous intelligence, genuine altruism, virtuous virtuous responsibility, and measured fairness. Dr. Brooks, or Bob, as he likes to be called, upcoming, his upcoming book, which he co-wrote with um, Dr. Sam Goldstein, called Tenacity in Children, Nurturing the Seven Instincts for Lifetime Success, features practical strategies to guide children in acquiring and fine-tuning these essential human instincts. It provides a solid foundation to prepare children for a resilient and happy future. Bob is currently on the faculty of Harvard Medical School part-time and is the former director of the Department of Psychology at McLean Hospital, a private psychiatric hospital. He is board certified in clinical psychology as well as listed in the Council for, for the National Register of Health Service Providers in Psychology. He has authored, co-authored, co-edited 18 books and in addition authored or co-authored almost three dozen book chapters and more than three dozen peer-reviewed scientific articles. Um, let me tell you about the other author of the book, who's not with us today, but his name is Sam Goldstein, and he is an adjunct assistant professor in the Department of Psychiatry, the University of Utah School of Medicine, and certified school psychologist in the state of Utah, along with many other qualifications. So let's get started, because this is a topic that I am so excited um, it is a, you know, I, I'm so passionate about narcissistic abuse, but if I had to pick something that I was equally passionate about, it's how to raise children so that they are resilient, so that we have, that the next generation can take care of themselves, can move this country forward, they can be resilient. This is so, so important. So we're going to learn a lot today. Good morning, Bob. Welcome. Uh, well, good morning, Randy. How are you doing today? I am doing very well, thank you. And you? Very nice. It's a lovely day here in the Boston area, and uh, so far everything's worked out fine. Okay. I, right, I'm, I, I tend to be optimistic and reflecting <laughs> part of uh, what's in the book. Okay. So you and um, and Sam Goldstein – formed a friendship over 30 years ago. And can you tell us about how you met and how that formed? Uh, oh, oh, certainly. Uh, and I'll even go back a little longer. About 35, almost 40 years ago, as a young psychologist, I uh, started to shift my focus from what I was trained in, which was basically called the medical model, Randy. It was basically looking at what is wrong with people and then how do you, quotes fix them. And just given a number of experiences I had with both children and adults, I started wondering about what helps people to overcome adversity and to be resilient, to be able to cope effectively with adversity. And then uh, at a conference in 1992, it's hard for me to believe it was almost 30 years ago, Sam and I were both presenting, and uh, we just hit it off. 
And that led us to really have a number of discussions about the importance of looking at both children and adults' strengths rather than their deficits. And I had already in the 1980s coined the term, I said every child, every adult, even if they're having difficulty, they also have islands of competence, which was another way of saying areas of strength. But there was something about that image which really seemed to capture captured people's interest. So what happened was, as we were collaborating, sharing ideas about similar paths we had taken, uh, we then sat down and authored, uh, co-authored our first book, Raising Resilient Children, which is now 20 years old, again, how the years go by. And we really, in that book, tried to discuss what are the characteristics of resilient children. How does a resilient child see the world differently from one who's not? Because we felt the more we could articulate the outlook and the behaviors of a resilient child, the more then we had guidelines that parents could use to help their kids to be resilient. Several years went by. We continued our collaboration, and we then said, you know, one of the components of a resilient mindset, self-discipline, really deserved uh, its own uh, platform, if you will, because in order to be resilient and in order to live more of a resilient lifestyle, you really had to think before you acted. You had to reflect on things. So then that led to us writing a book, and I'm, I'm just giving this background, which will lead to then this last book. That led us to write a book in 2007, six years later, Raising a Self-Disciplined Child. And then our collaboration continued. It was, it's amazing to have a 30-year collaboration with someone who bouncing ideas constantly back and forth, and we felt... There was one more component, uh, and Sam approached me. We had been talking about it, and we called the tenacity. We said that you almost needed the energy or fuel to help you to be self-disciplined and help you to be resilient. And Sam did uh, some of the research, and then we did it together, and that led to tenacity, which we defined basically as strong-mindedness and purpose. But what we said is, and this was very exciting, and I know I'm going on a little here, but then we'll get into the instincts. We said, you know, there are these inborn instincts, not like a bird building a nest or a fish going upstream. They're actually within each of us from birth. That's why we call them instincts, a certain intuitive way of knowing that really are very positive and helped us, as you mentioned in the introduction, helped our species to survive for thousands and thousands of years. So we said these characteristics, these instincts are already there. It's important for parents to know what these instincts are so they could nurture them and to really help them to grow. And what we did... What we did is then listed, you know, seven of these instincts. I know I I was a little wordy there, but I wanted to give people a sense of how the concept of resilience led us to emphasize then self-discipline and then this news concept that there are characteristics there within every child that we could foster and help them to become more resilient and tenacious. This book, you know, every parent should have this book because it is really a guide to building building children. And as I'm reading it, I cannot help but think about my son. He's a mm-hmm. perfect example of all of this, all of this. So oh. when he was in school, he, he's 29 now. When he was in, in, in grade school, he could have cared less about school. He never read a book. He never studied for a test. He bombed every test he took. Um, If I tried to help him study, I had about five minutes before he started tossing the pen in the air, and I lost him. And when he was about 15 years old, but he was really smart, but when he was about 15 years old, he started building electronic equipment for guitars. And it was, he was brilliant, and he was selling it mm. all over the world. He wrote a, um, a, uh, a manual, an online manual that people could buy, you know, and he was super successful. But all those years that he was bombing tests and everything like that, every time I said, you know, you're smart. You're really smart. It's just that this isn't your thing. 
you know? Mm-hmm. And I said that for years and years and years. Long story short, long story short, he is a surgeon. He's and what? Uh, a surgeon. Oh, a doctor. Well, well, yeah, you okay. see, I'm a little surprised, but I shouldn't be surprised because I'll tell you a similar story. But go, <laughs> right. go on. He this is, is wonderful. I love these stories. Yes, because when he got to college and he decided he wanted to be Dr. Fine, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, <laughs> he became a solid A student in um, microbiology and something crazy. I don't know how he did it, but he mm-hmm. taught himself how to study, and he got himself through five years of, of undergrad, four years of medical school, and now he's in a five-year residency program for surgery. And he is smart. But I never, you know, every time he said, I can't do it, I'm dumb, I always said, no, you are really smart. You are smart. You just haven't found your thing. It resonated with him. It, this works. This absolutely works. Yeah. You know, what you just brought up, I'll get to this in a while, but is uh, very powerful. To, uh, first of all, it's a lovely story of resilience, and it's a lovely story of a parent recognizing a child's strengths or islands of competence uh, in, in, in terms of what you uh, did. Because every child has their own path to take in life. One of the things we say in the book, all these instincts are there. But, it, you know, they may be to a greater or less extent in each child than we as parents. And what, what you just said, in many of my writings, Randy, I say we must learn to identify and honor our children's islands of competence. And why I use the word honor is, and it really some of it ties to your work on narcissism, is some parents do not honor their kids' strengths because they're not in keeping with what the parents think a child should be saying or doing. And uh, when you just talked about your son, I thought about a, a young teenager I worked with where he was not great in school. And when I, I always ask parents, what do you see as your child's strengths or their islands of competence? And with this particular kid, they said, well, we wish he would have better grades and have friends and whatever. And they actually f- felt that what the, his strength was was something that would not be appreciated. It, it, it t- turned out he loved to garden and take care of plants. And it took a lot of work with these parents to recognize, but this is your child's strength. And we used it, by the way, in school. He, all the plants around the school, he helped to plant and things like that. But you were very wise early on to really say to your son that it's not so much you're not smart. In one sense, he had not found his interest. And I'll briefly mention this. I know I could go on because it was so exciting. (laughs) My oldest son, Rich, who's very successful today, did no work in school in the 8th, ninth, 10th, and 11th grades. I wish I handled him better, uh, much better. (laughs) You did a much better job with your son. And Rich thought homework was optional. I did not, nor did his teachers, but uh, I started becoming estranged almost from Rich, and here I am supposedly an expert on parenting and family relations, because all I would say is, did you do your homework, did you do this? And it wasn't until I recognized that our relationship just focused entirely on grades, and here was this lovely kid, very compassionate and caring kid, and president of the youth group at our temple, all these wonderful things, but his grades weren't as good. And... I just then said, I've got to learn to accept him for who he is, not what I want him to be. And uh, we have a very close relationship today. He started his own company. He foresaw the web coming in, and he does a lot of work in social media. Mm, Anyway, same kind of thing. But I had to, in that case, I had to adjust my expectations. I wasn't giving myself the advice I was giving to families I was seeing in uh, treatment, <laughs> so, you, okay. which is sometimes tough. But what I love about also what you said is kids have different paths to take, and that's why I started to say we must identify and honor our children's strengths, and they may not be what we had hoped they would be, but that's what is bringing our kid joy and excitement. And then with just like with my son, with your son, when Rich went off to college, uh, he just started to blossom, you know, mm-hmm. and uh, it was wonderful to see. So those instincts, which was there, a lot of them, 
I, he yeah. found them, and we reinforced them. So uh, your, your story triggered what I could speak about yes. for an hour for my own personal life, but it's a very right. important point you made in that regard. And when I read some of your articles on narcissism, see, a narcissistic parent has would have difficulty with that. They have an image of who their child should be and uh, and how many parents want to say about their teenage son he likes to garden. They want to say he's getting good grades or, you know, he's good in sports. And uh, this boy was having a great deal of difficulty because the one thing that brought him any joy, he received really no positive feedback from his parents. Yeah. So I'm the daughter of a narcissistic mother. So mm-hmm. I understand what this is about. But what was really interesting is my, I have two children. My daughter was, you could put her anywhere and she would excel. Brilliant mm-hmm. in math, you know, she just anywhere she would excel. Um, mm-hmm. My son was, was very, very different. But mm-hmm. um, my parents adored my daughter and gave no attention to my son whatsoever. Now that mm-hmm. he's a doctor, all of a sudden they're back in his life. So this well, is typical. <laughs> this is typical narcissistic yeah, no, behavior. This is like a conversation between two parents sharing their journey here. Uh, <laughs> I, I'm regard. No, I, why I'm laughing? I, I'm sorry for interrupting, and then I'll focus on the book. But uh, I would say my, our youngest son, uh, he uh, he was very good in school and whatever. Both bright, but very good in school. And I felt like like saying to my wife, "Our oldest son is rich. Our youngest son is Doug. I'll go to Doug's open school night. You go to Rich's because at least." With Doug, I would hear these positive things, but you know what you brought up also with you, you with your mother is uh, towards your own their own her own grandchildren. I mean, it's really uh, for me, you know, we I don't want to use jargon, but it's really conditional love. You know, I oh, love you yes. as long as you make me feel like I'm a good parent or grandparent, or I could tell all my neighbors and friends about you. Yes. You know, my grandson, exactly. the doctor, right? In that exactly. regard. Um, and, you know, all of us may have a little of that, but when it, you know, what, you, what I've read about your articles and so, when it gets to an extreme, it really, it's a lot, it's devastating for a lifetime. And you've yes, certainly written about that. Mm-hmm. And that's, so, little did I know some of these stories were going to trigger so many of my own uh, recollections. <laughs> that's yeah. amazing. And the other thing, you know, and the other thing that I can say I mean, my daughter was easier to raise. I raised her with very similar, mm-hmm. you know, tactics, but I didn't have to mm-hmm. re- work as hard. Yeah, right. but, um, but both of my kids are super resilient. When they went away to college, mm-hmm. they were totally independent. And mm-hmm. they've been independent. They know how to live. They are, you know, smart as far as making decisions in their lives and all those kind of things. So, um that's that's why I'm so excited to talk to you about tenacity and resilience mm-hmm. and you know all parents need to know how to do this for children. So let's talk about um kids who have like ADHD and they can't they don't fit into the school model. How how uh, should, how yeah. should this be dealt with? Yeah, uh Again, the question, uh, a lot of my interest, now this goes back when I, that's why I gave a little history, a lot of my interest in resilience and what helps kids to bounce back, we're working with a lot of kids who were struggling in school and had diagnoses of ADHD or learning differences or disabilities depending on, you know, when the term uh, may have been used, and Part of the problem is I do a lot of work with educators, uh, and a lot of my writings have been for educators. And here also, I think one of the their key things, uh, and like one of the things, whenever I go up to school to work with kids, uh, to talk to teach about kids, one of the first questions I always ask Randy is, what do you see as this student's strengths? I use words like this, their beauty, their islands of competence, because I want to start having people think about kids more than their diagnosis and looking at their strengths and how can we use these strengths. And if we have time, I can, you know, I can mention uh, some, some uh, very specific kids in this way. I think there's been a tr- transition, but it still has to take place in this. When I first started in the field and a kid had ADHD, and the diagnoses were first really getting known in this 
late 70s and 80s. So often, and unfortunately I still hear this, this kid is lazy, this kid is unmotivated, this kid do it, could do it if he wanted or she wanted to do it. And what, if any ed- educator has a mindset like that, then what they're basically doing is saying, this, this kid, it's his or her problem, rather than what is it I can do as an educator to really accommodate in some way. This doesn't mean, by the way, giving in, accommodate in some way to help a kid to learn more effectively. We have to accommodate more to a child style than they're going to be able to accommodate to what's expected in school. What I, why I became so interested in resilience is I saw that when you had an adult in your life, say at school, an educator, who really could accommodate in some way what a difference it made in a kid's life. And it just uh, when I just said an adult, I just want to mention this for your listeners. In all the research that's been done on resilience, when you ask adults who have truly overcome adversity and say we could have never predicted based on how you were growing up, the home you grew up in, the environment, or you were felt like a school failure, we could have never predicted that you would be as hopeful and as optimistic as you are today. What do you think was one of the most important things in your childhood or adolescence to help you be resilient today? In almost every study that was done, Randy, the first answer was there was at least one adult along the way who truly believed in me and stood by me. It's almost impossible to be resilient if there are not supportive adults along the way, just like you were with your son. When you said to him, the constant message is really, you know, that you just haven't, you know, paraphrasing, you haven't found your passion yet. You haven't found your interests yet. And to, for for an adult to, to say a teacher to a child who has ADHD, we're just trying to figure out the best way for you to learn and be successful. Kids will remember messages like that for a lifetime. So um, I, I really, a lot of my interest in resilience started working with a lot of kids who felt like true failures growing up. Mm. Yes. Yes. Well, one of the things, you know, um, childhood narcissistic abuse creates uh, adult children of of narcissistic abuse. They're Mm -hmm. either usually either underachievers or overachievers. They swing Mm -hmm. very, very far Mm -hmm. in either direction. And so it does affect them. And the overachievers just just their whole life, all they do is try to work, 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 work. Um, and they think, you know, it, success is everything. The underachievers mm-hmm. don't even bother because they don't think they're going to get anywhere anyway. So it's, mm-hmm. um, it's a hard thing to overcome. It really is. Oh, it, it, it definitely is. I mean, you were able to, and you were able to, uh, you know, you didn't follow the same script, obviously, uh, obviously <laughs> as your mother did, but no. Part of what you bring up is sometimes we follow that same script because we're so it's like a spider's web and uh, and it's sometimes very difficult to break out of. But I the same thing I, I've seen. I, you know when you just gave the example you gave, I remember once working seeing a man in therapy and he grew up in with I think both his parents from the description were quite narcissistic and he would say he was very excellent student athlete and he would say to me i still remember this he said he was a a pitcher on his high school team he said when i would strike out the last batter i I had no there was no enjoyment because all i could think about is would i be able to do it again in the next Mm, game perfectionist you know Mm -hmm. very much so and uh, you know he went into therapy he also was able to just knowing his kids a, a little from his description really did not, not uh, echo or parallel the parenting style of his what his parents were like. But imagine growing up in that way, that the pressure, then you don't even feel any of the enjoyment. Or as you said, it could be either way. Or people feeling, what's the use? It's almost like that notion of learned helplessness. Whatever I do is mm-hmm. not going to work anyway. Sometimes mm-hmm. it could even be an acting out against the parents, whether the people mm-hmm. realize it or not. You know, I, you know, I'm not going to in any way uh, let them feel miserable about how I'm doing here. Uh, it gets what I learned as a psychologist for over 40 years. Certainly, uh, uh, there's a lot of complications 
along the way. Uh, and that's why even the first, when I first started writing and then the first book I do with Sam is, what 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 does a healthy relationship look like so you can help your kids be resilient? And, you know, the, the, the book, as you mentioned, the different instincts, what are the, the post positive instincts that have helped us to survive so that parents could just reinforce it knowing that they're that they're there but if you grow up in a a home where there's as you did with a narcissistic parent it's very difficult because the parent is not thinking in that way they're just thinking about how do you satisfy my needs or you have to be this perfect kid or you you know you have to act in a certain way with Mm -hmm. others uh so you're not thinking about Oh, how am I going to help my kid to be more successful or to be more self-assured uh, in that regard? Because it all goes back. The word narcissism it goes back to yourself mm-hmm. in, in that regard. Um, so it is a real struggle. My mother used to say to me, it's so funny because now that I look back on the things that she said to me, they're so bizarre. But at the time, I thought they were wisdom because when you're in it, you don't know. And she used to say to me, Oh, Randy, I hope you can develop a thicker skin in life than me. I'm never able to do it. I hope you can do it. Well, okay, great. You hope I can do it? <laughs> well, yeah. are you going to contribute to it or, or, or what? You know, I look back and I, I think, yeah, you hope. And then yeah. what? Um, so, um, okay, so I want to make sure we get to the seven instincts of tenacity. Yes, Let's... little did I know the, some of these commonalities here that we shared. Okay, okay. <laughs> Okay, so let's get to this. And you know what? We have so much to talk about. You're going to come back. So let's. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> okay. Well, you're so delightful talk... to talk with. You trigger so many, uh, you know, experiences from my own life, both personal and professional. But, yeah, we could Thank go you. through these uh, certainly to some extent. And uh, as we do, you know, certainly some overlap. And uh, I'll just mention this as we go through this. The excitement of finding out how the uh, – the rudimentary forms of all of these behaviors were there at birth. I mean, there's a lot of research. I'm not going to go into all the research, but there's certainly a lot of research, which in the book we try to summarize. So, okay, so we we could go through now. So whatever ones you want (laughs) to talk about. Yeah, okay. All right, so intuitive optimism is, how would you describe that? Well, it's it's basically the belief uh, that there could be positive outcomes, and I know for some people listening, what I'm going to say now may almost sound silly, but you, kids, infants have uh, intuitive optimism. Uh, when a kid first starts to walk, I always, I, even before I wrote this book, I said, what happens when they first start to walk? By the way, there's some work being done in our house next door. So I okay. background noise. Uh, we live on a quiet, dead-end street, but just today uh, they're doing some work. But anyway, uh, what, with, with intuitive optimism, basically, kids start to walk, they fall. But then they get up again. Now, some people may say, well, wait a second, but they're already showing this kind of optimism that certain things will lead to better results. And so it's hard to be resilient if you don't have that sense of hope and optimism. What the research shows is that is there almost from birth that kids will attempt to do things. Sadly, and this is where parents could either help these uh, instincts to flourish or not. Sadly, in some cases, kids at an early age, when you mentioned kids with ADHD, but kids at an early age hear from teachers or parents, if only you tried harder, if only you did this, well, that does a, quite a number on a kid's uh, self-esteem. And what also intuitive optimism is from an early age, it's where parents really help kids to solve problems and don't rush in. You know, all of this is outlined in the book because we have different, at different ages, intuitive optimism. So there's research to show kids as young as two and a half, three, as long as they're verbal, if you ask them ways of solving problems, they actually could start telling you different ways of solving problems. And we, re, you know, that is reinforced. And with that helps, and interrupt me at any time because I get very excited about these, it helps to develop a key aspect of resilience, what I call personal control. It's almost like the serenity prayer. What we want to see develop in both kids and hopefully adults is more and more to focus on what you have control over rather than 
trying to change things you have very little control over. You focus, as the wonderful psychiatrist and Holocaust survivor Viktor Frankl said in his book, Man's Search for Meaning, what we all have control over more than we realize is our attitude and response to situations. It doesn't mean it's easy, but we do. So just to give you an example, when you mentioned ADHD before, I was seeing, uh, he was about eight years old, a boy who had just been diagnosed with ADHD. And one of the things he said to me is, why did God choose me to be the one with ADHD? Now, asking why me is very common. Parents, if their kid is having trouble, will say, why my child or whatever. But if you keep saying why me, you can't move forward. And what I said to him, which was you know, basically like the beginning of therapy, is, you know, Kids, some kids have ADHD, some don't, but once we know they do, then there are things we can do, adults can do and kids could do to really help kids with ADHD. So what you're saying is, yes, you had no control over developing ADHD. We will have control over both the parents and teachers and the kid themselves is how do you react to it? And all of these things re- really help to reinforce the sense of optimism. There are things we could do. We can, that when, I always, have often said resilient children see problems as things to be solved rather than overwhelmed by. Mm-hmm. Because I've, I've often said in my audiences, when I had live audiences, but I still could do it with webinars, I often have said, have any of you ever faced a problem where the, your first reaction is, I don't even know where to start? And I raise my hand, and everyone raises their hand if they're being honest. I said, imagine if almost every problem you faced, you felt that way. And I said, it's overwhelming. And, and that gets often people, one of the examples you use, Randy, to just say, what's the use in that regard? So we start with the assumption kids can be optimistic. They actually show it in their behaviors as they're learning to walk and to talk And uh, in this regard. Because, by the way, this was the other uh, – I had an intruding thought. When a kid falls down, how many parents, after they've taken the first steps, would say, if you tried a little harder, you could walk better? What we do is we support them in that regard. But a few years later, if they're having struggling with something else, if you tried harder, you know, we could do this. Right. I, intuitive optimism. If, if we don't yeah. have that optimism, it's so difficult to be resilient or to develop, you know, to develop tenacity. Yes. Oh, my gosh. It is so important. Yeah, I just the only point I wanted to make there was um, sure. children need to understand how to work through disappointment. Because Mm -hmm. disappointment is going to come all through life. And so they need to understand that, you know, I always told my children, if it doesn't, if you don't get what you want, it's because there's something else better. Um, Something else is coming, you know. And so my kids still live by that. And they've had major disappointments. And yet they go, all right, you know, something else is coming. (laughs) You know why? I, I just, I'm, I'm, you see, it triggered something again. And I'm really sorry, but actually, under intuitive optimism, we talk about helping children to deal with setbacks and mistakes, preparing mm. them. There's wonderful work in the field of positive psychology. You know, a lot of people say positive psychology, that's when you ignore negative feelings, whatever. I say not at all. You never can ignore sadness, depression, or anxiety, but positive psychology also looks at the strengths that people have so they can overcome some of these uh, difficult feelings. But one of the things we talk about in the, in the book, and I've written a lot about, is prepare your kids that mistakes and obstacles are going to occur. This turns gets to personal control. See, if they see this as a problem to be solved rather than overwhelmed by, they could be more optimistic that, one, there are different ways of handling this difficult situation, or I could move on to some other situation. And right. you did it, it sounds like, so nicely, uh, you know, with your kids. Uh, it's very important. I'm glad you added that because we do have that in the chapter on intuitive optimism about, mm-hmm. you know, dealing with mistakes. Right, right. You know, and, and I say to parents, you may not see the fruits of your labor and your wisdom and the way that you raise your children you may not see it and you probably won't see it until they become adults and that's when it all comes out so often it's very disappointing parents are like what am i doing this for i'm not getting anywhere right 
Yeah. Another wonderful thing. One parent once said to me early in my career, and it really, so many things they don't said, if only we had a crystal ball. Because it was it was a kid I'd worked with and had many problems, and you know one of your one of the success stories we could talk about, and just you know three four years later, this was a kid who had trouble in school and was doing so well now, had trouble making friends, had a number of friends, and she said, if only we had a crystal ball, but I would have never been become interested in resilience and the whole theme of bouncing back from adversity, if I didn't believe strongly, and based on a number of examples, if I didn't believe strongly in the power of each of us to be resilient. And I should add that when I wrote a book about resilience in adults, one of the reasons I wrote that was because I wanted to be able to say, when people ask me, "Can can you, and it ties to your point, that sometimes it's even much later on, I, I, is there ever a point where you can't become res- resilient anymore? I said, I, I start with the assumption that at any age, we could learn more effective ways of coping and more effective ways of enjoying life. Uh, and it's, it's not like it stops even at 20 or 21. I mean, I give in the book about resilience in adults, I give examples of people 50, 55, 60 starting to lead mm-hmm. more meaningful lives. Yes. So, so I agree with so, you. So again, to jump in with what, you're, what you said. <laughs> okay, that's good. That's good. Now, everything that you have to say is incredibly important. Um, intrinsic motivation. Let's just, let's just touch on that because I really want to talk about compassion, compassionate empathy. So, what is intrinsic motivation? Yeah, that also, that, it's a very big topic, and I'll t- try to keep it brief. You see, your questions just, tr- or, uh, well, I'll take full responsibility. <laughs> I was going to say they trigger okay. so much in me, but I get so okay. passionate about these. Mm-hmm. Intrinsic motivation it, it ties to the whole concept of flow or whatever. Kids from birth want to succeed. I remember there was a psychologist, Robert White, when, and I read his work in graduate school. He was a psychologist at Harvard. And he was trying to break away from an old psychoanalytic model of motivation that said two things motivate people. And certainly the strong things, aggression and basically sexuality. And he said one of the things we're really missing is that from birth within every child is the wish to master his or her environment. He even mm-hmm. called it a drive for effectiveness. So what he was basically saying is, People want to master their environment. There may be different ways. They're intrinsically motivated. The sad thing, and we talk about this in our book, kids get to school, and it ties to your questions about school. So often school is predicated on extrinsic motivation. You get rewards for good grades. You get rewards for this. And in the book, we give we provide research that actually shows that when you restart reinforcing kids for grades and whatever, it actually lessens their motivation. It becomes extrinsic motivation, and then it's almost like I'll only do okay if if you give me a, a reward for this. And mm-hmm. so Robert White's work had a big impact on me. That psychologist at Harvard, and so what we have to look at is. And it ties again. What are the kids' passions? What are they interested in? Let's reinforce, you know, those kinds of things. The problem is, and this ties also to something you asked about school and kids with ADHD. The more difficulties kids are having in school, the more we rely on extrinsic motivation, give them rewards, rather than saying, what is it in school that would really help them? Like that boy who uh, who loved to plant and garden. The reason he started to come to school was when he started putting plants in the lobby and outside the school, now every day when he came in, he saw the product of what was his passion in that regard. And so I start with the assumption that kids are born intrinsically motivated, not to everything, but certainly intrinsically motivated. And we have to be really uh, astute in looking at their passions, reinforcing these passions, and I believe Robert White is right. Every, every one of us wants to, in one sense, to, uh, he may have used the word master, his or her environment, meaning to be successful in that environment mm-hmm. in that regard. And too often, many of the things we do with kids are very extrinsically motivated. Uh, and they, they become, you know, some people have said they become almost like bribes. They're, they're, they're meaningless. And you take away that reinforcement, and then the kid's not as interested. Even if they were interested in the before you gave them, that's 
mm-hmm. some of the research shows. If you reward a kid for an activity they like, this was even in preschool, and then you take away the award, they're not as interested in doing that activity anymore. So, so I, uh, you know, yeah, I yeah. think that I think that um, it's really important that children feel empowered in their life somehow. Exactly. And so one of the ways um, that I help other parents um, who come to me is I make sure, because if you just say, all right, we're doing this, all right, come on along, I don't want to come, you have to. Then mm-hmm. you take away the child's power. But if you say, all right, I know this is not going to be fun, but you do this, and then next time you're going to get to choose what the family does. You give that child mm-hmm. some power in his or her life and in making decisions. You steer it in a way that's going to go you know, where you think they should go, but you let them think they are choosing. I think that's so important. Oh, I, I, what you just said, I would underline 30 times that <laughs> even giving kids choice in school. I once was consulting with a teacher, and she said, you know, one of the ways when kids who are having trouble learning, it's basically what you're pointing, to, get, to help them to get to write. This was before we had computers, calculated everything else. She said, I'll, I'll always say, do you want to write in blue ink or black ink today? I mean, it may sound funny, but once they made the choice of winning to write in, they felt much more motivated. They felt much yes. more empowered there. And uh, actually, under intrinsic motivation, we talk a lot. One of the people's models I use a lot is uh, uh, two psychologists in, uh, in Rochester, New York, at the University of Rochester, Edward D.C. and uh, Richard Ryan. They have a theory called self-determination theory, and they look at intrinsic motivation. That two of the world's experts on it. One of the things is is really self-determination, a sense of autonomy, feeling you have some choice. And I always say to parents, this doesn't mean you're giving your kids, you know, giving up your authority in any way or whatever. But it does mean that you're helping them to find their way, helping them to be better problem solvers, helping them to be more motivated because if it comes from within you, you're going to be more motivated. The same is true when, you know, when I talk to adults or business people, people are going to be more motivated at, in a workplace if they feel their voice is being heard. It doesn't mean every, uh, their, their employer is going to go along with everything they say. But when you feel your voice is being heard, you're going to be more, much more motivated to engage in that activity. If you feel people always tell you what to do, and some kids feel this way in school or in their homes, uh, then the problem is intrinsic motivation is squashed. Mm-hmm. And actually, there's research to show with adults, if you go to work every day and feel you have no voice, it actually starts affecting your health and your immune system. And it's it's really interesting as I looked at some of the research, in, you know, in terms of uh, that. Should we get the compassion, and empathy? Yeah, uh, and, um, and, I, and and you know, and yeah, when I read but, this, when I when I saw compassionate empathy, um, the first thing that came to mind is a client of mine who has a child, and she said this child came into the world with no empathy, mm-hmm. and I had never really experienced that before. I had never really heard that, but she said she does not have she cannot feel for anything. So she's been teaching her how to do it doesn't come intrinsically. So let's talk about that. Yes. Uh, uh, wow. Another valuable point. Uh, by coincidence, uh, one of the cases we use, I, I shouldn't use the word case, it's a family. One of the families we talk about in our book was a child uh, who came into the world that way. Because this may sound uh, like it's Bob talking out of both sides of his mouth. On the one hand, he's saying there's this instinct, uh, compassion, empathy. On the other hand, I'll also say that there are different levels, and there are some kids when parents say they show almost no empathy, I believe them. And with some kids, it's just like we have to teach them much more actively. What can come very natural for some kids does not come as easily for these kids. The issue, what happens, though, Randy, is parents could get, if they don't know that there are these differences in temperament or so, parents could get very angry saying, my kid has no empathy. And what what happens is then your own empathy disappears. So 
I'm going to start with the assumption that every kid comes into the world with compassion and empathy, but I totally agree that there are some kids where it's very limited for whatever reason. It's just like uh, we know, you know, having I've worked with a lot of kids on the autism spectrum and Sam and I wrote a book, Raising Resilient Children with Autism Spectrum Disorders. We know one of the deficits in these kids, if you will, or one of the you know limits they have is the is in terms of empathy. But that doesn't mean we can't help them to be more empathic. So there's the wiring in the brain that with some kids are much easier for them to really have high levels of all of these instincts. So with that being said. What, in, in all of my writings, starting 35 years ago, I talked about how critical it was to be empathic. And I don't want to be overly simplistic, but empathy, you know, to put yourself inside the shoes of your child and see the world through their eyes. It's very distorted, and you experience it firsthand when you have a narcissistic parent. It's almost impossible for them to put themselves in their kid's shoes because they they're, they're, want their kids to live a certain life uh which is based on on their narcissism, you know, in in that regard. But in in and and we started also asking questions. Parents said to me, "Are there some questions that will help me to be more empathic?" And for a narcissistic parent, this would be these questions would be difficult. One would be, "What words do you hope your children use to describe you?" But a second question is, "What do you?" intentionally say and do on a regular basis are likely to use the words you hope they use. And already there's going to be some distortion having worked with kids and adults who grew up in a home where there was a narcissistic parent and having worked with some narcissistic people, those questions are going to be much more difficult to answer. So I started to develop questions to help people to be more empathic, to think about how they come across in this book, we tie together compassion and empathy, and uh, this was one chapter I did a fair bit of research, and one of the th- ways some of the researchers uh, uh, distinguished between compassion and empathy and why we put it together, empathy was the capacity to put yourself inside the shoes of another person, it could be your own child, obviously, see the world through their eyes. But the way it was distinguished, compassion was seen then as taking that empathy and helping others, being kind to others. So that it was almost like there's the understanding there, but what do you do with the understanding is then be helpful to others. And here also, I was so intrigued by the research I found about kids already showing signs of empathy. It certainly was the precursors, the mm-hmm. rudimentary signs. When kids were just several days old, uh, uh, there's some research that sh- uh, showed, you know, w- one kid feeling distressed, uh, hearing someone cry, their brain lit up the same way. Their, you know, their early brain mm. there was lighting up the same way. So w- what basically we felt here was if kids could come into the world and have the capacity for empathy, and once again, I'll say for some kids, it is much more difficult. and It's almost like we have to help them. That's why I brought up kids on the autism spectrum. It could be difficult. Kids with what's called nonverbal learning disabilities have more of a difficulty that way. But I always have felt strongly, okay, the way our brains are wired may make it more difficult for kids to be or show more compassion and empathy. But I always would say to parents, the kid is not doing this on purpose. So what we have to look at is what are the techniques we can use so we don't get upset with a child, but really to help them to see. And and there are actually programs to help kids to be more empathic. Mm. That's so in, cool. In this regard. So... Um, just to touch on one point, you know, that you said and you were talking about, sure. you know, trying to put ourselves in the shoes of our children and everything like that. Mm-hmm. I think that a lot of parents don't understand that their children are separate entities, that they don't own mm-hmm. the children and mm-hmm. that the children come into the world with their own trajectory. And and knowing that and understanding that really helps us because if we see that our child is going through something that we can't fix, we mm-hmm. have to understand that that child has their own lessons, their own direction, their own things that they have to learn, that we can't fix everything. And so parents have a hard time because they believe that it's their job 
to fix everything, and that's not true, right? Oh, what a wonderful point, uh, it, it, you know, in, in, in terms of what you just said. By the way, uh, this is a digression. I've seen that with, in couples therapy I've done where sometimes one of the spouses just says, I just want you to listen to me. Don't jump in right away and feel you have to fix it right away. But what you so that was just a, a quick <laughs> digression. Right. Exactly. But what you just brought up, but it's a, I brought it up because it's throughout in many relationships. You know, our kids weren't put in this world to make us feel like great parents. I mean, in one sense. And what you said is, we have to appreciate each child has a different path in life. That's why, you know, with all of the aggravation I had for three, four years, maybe aggravation. Well, it probably was at the time aggravation with my son Rich because he was doing nothing in school, and here I am. We made it tough. I, I was lecturing all over the country on how to motivate students. All of my son's <laughs> teachers had taken my workshop on how to motivate students. So. I had to learn each kid has a different path. He found his passion, you know, in, in, in terms of different things he was doing. He, at college, he was a disc jockey. He was a waiter, a bartender. These were all things leading then to his interests somehow, you know, in, in what the company he started. So what you just said is we could help our kids, but they all have to find their own paths in life. Now, if a young child is in a dangerous situation, certainly we have to move in, but it gets to what you said before. We have to let kids feel comfortable failing at times, as long as it's not a dangerous situation. We have to be careful not to rush it. We have to appreciate each kid has his or her own islands of competence right. in that regard. And we can't fix anything. And you know, when, when you just think about that, one of the things that really helped me, because the first thing I would say to Rich when I came home from work, and I, here I am working at a psychiatric hospital where I was Dr. Empathy, Rich, did you do your homework yet? Why would you start with that question knowing there was so much tension? But I felt I had to get him to do his homework. It wasn't until years later, why it took me so many years, I don't know, that I said, what question would you be asking if, if you know, Rich was your patient or so and, and his, you were seeing his parents? And I would say this. I would ask the father, how do you think Rich experiences it when the first thing you ask him when you come home is to do your homework? I mm -hmm. was asking other things. And you know what I realized, Randy, is what he experienced it as is I just don't care about anything but his grades and his homework and whatever. And right away right. there was tension. And so I, I've often said I'm glad I had a son like Rich because if I didn't have a son like Rich, I would think, oh, all, you know what, all you have to do is – do the things you think are going to be right, and every kid's going to be motivated to do everything. But every kid <laughs> is different in that regard. Uh, so it really helped me to be more understanding also when parents would come and say, my kid's not doing their homework or not doing this. <laughs> I was more concerned when they said my kid's doing nothing and is in his or her room all day and doing nothing. But yep. Rich had many other strengths. That, that That's when I started taking a much broader view of, you know, kids, ha just like you said, kids having their own path. Uh, kids having things they're intrinsically motivated more about than other things, being more optimistic about certain things uh, mm -hmm. in this regard. Uh, and the last point I wanted to make just about this is, you know, when that parent said, and it seems like an understanding parent, my kid came into this world with almost no empathy, uh, but the parent instead really seemed to be saying maybe I, there are things I could do to help my kid to become more empathic. If there's a scale of one to ten, and some kids are at ten, they're almost born with, you know, very empathic. But if your kids are two or three, maybe we could get them to six. And that's what we talk about in our book about kids on the autism spectrum who do have difficulty with empathy. But instead of blaming them for lacking certain qualities, how do we teach these skills to them? Right. Like she would say, you know, when the child was young, she thought nothing of going up to somebody and poking them in the eye. She thought nothing of taking a cat and throwing it across the room. She had like no feeling, but she has really worked with her. Uh, thing is, she's exhausted. She is exhausted. You know, this is hard work. It's very hard work. Uh, that's a whole other topic where working with parents of kids, I'll say with special needs and special needs in a broad way, I, whenever I work with them, I always say to them, who is your support? Who, who do you turn towards? You know, we have to build that in. It is exhausting 
to work with a child who some kids are very, <laughs> I don't know if this is the best term, high maintenance, not through any mm-hmm. fault of their own. I mean, but they're, right. and that's where I really feel very strongly, uh, having worked with a lot of kids on the autism spectrum, who, who can who can the parents turn to? Who can the parents turn to where they can even get away for a few days, you know, in that regard? So uh, what you're bringing up is, I, there's a workshop a talk I give. Can you take care of your children if you don't take care of yourself? And it could be, mm-hmm. can you take care of your students if you don't take care of yourself? You know, in this regard. So uh, I, I, we have to also have a lot of self care there. Yes, absolutely. And I tell her that she's like, well, I'm trying. You know. Um, so, oh, so, I know. Right. So as we we have about five more minutes, but I want to ask you, do you think? that the education model is eventually going to change so that we are addressing children rather than having been just teaching to a standardized test so the school can get more money, more funding? Uh, yeah, well, oh, <laughs> you see, <laughs> I, I'm yeah, laughing I, to myself because I say I, I want to be uh, as optimistic as I can. It's a real struggle. I've seen mm-hmm. differences in different schools. I've been very blessed. Randy in my career to really give workshops around the country, the world to different educators visit different schools and I think there in some schools there's a greater acceptance uh, of this uh, I think it's, it is very difficult to change uh, educational models where you know just even this year in Massachusetts, I know in other states because I live in Massachusetts, they didn't require standardized tests for kids. Given everything the kids have been through, they felt there was one more stress on the kids and the teachers. And there's part of me which knows you have to give certain tests, but so much of a kid's feeling of success is how they do on these tests. Uh, and years ago, a psychologist at Harvard, Howard Gardner, introduced the notion of multiple intelligences and he had eight now he has nine and he says we're all born with different kinds of intelligences unfortunately most schools only measure two mathematical logical skills and verbal skills but he said there are some kids who are very you know, wonderful in, in art and some kids who are wonderful athletes but mm-hmm. the, the standardized tests don't measure uh, these kinds of things and so when you bring this up, I try to practice personal control, and I try to say, what is it I can do at least to uh, uh, bring up certain issues? And I say, well, at least through my workshops, at least through my articles, I'm able to bring up alternative ways of looking at kids in schools. But we get so entrenched in a certain model that it's very, very uh, difficult at times uh, to change. So I'm going to be optimistic i've seen some changes but i also see in some schools everything you know has to do with the test and the grades and teachers mm-hmm. telling me that teachers seeing what we call social emotional factors as almost an extracurriculum when in my whole philosophy and all my writings about it in education have been addressing a child's social emotional needs is not an extracurriculum as a matter of fact when kids feel more safe and secure and that you're really being empathic uh, with them they're going to they're going to excel much more in academics so true yeah. um one more question do sure. you believe do you believe that in order to help adults change or restructure the way they experience life and handle life and more resilient that the child, the childhood has to be looked at. Oh wow! Here's another hour-long thing. I yeah, think I know. it's helpful for adults to see certain patterns which may have led them lead that way. Mm-hmm. I right. also feel okay. I'm going to sound like I'm speaking out of both sides of my mouth here. I also feel that I've seen adults change without totally understanding all the factors that went into the way they see things now. So I'll say both. Like okay. what your question triggered in me is I, right away I thought of several families I worked with when they could understand how their reaction, their reactions of parents to their kids mirrored, if you will, some of the reactions mm-hmm. of their parents towards them. Right. It was very helpful in them changing the script. I've also seen parents 
who acted in a certain way weren't sure. They couldn't necessarily pinpoint it, but just by changing their behavior now, it helps. So I think seeing certain patterns can be very helpful in saying, oh, now I have a better understanding and these are ways I can change. Mm -hmm. Uh, But sometimes there wasn't that understanding. What I started to say to parents, to all of us, we are the authors of our own lives. That doesn't mean... Uh, we could change everything, but if we could think of life as a script, if we understand some of those past scripts, think about what script we want now. And sometimes we need help in understanding what script we want now, and then what are the steps we can take. And th- this ties with kids, with kids too, like you did with your son, basically saying to him, we ha- you haven't found the script that is bringing you as much passion now. And but there, it will be there, or you uh, in this regard, just like I mm-hmm. did with my son. Finally, you know, he has a different path. He has a different script than I had. I would have never mm-hmm. thought growing up to go to school without my homework being done. As I right. said, rich, rich sort is optional, uh, basically. And I don't know what made me more angry when he did it and then forgot to bring it in, or whatever, <laughs> or didn't, didn't do it at all. Yeah, but and, it's, you know, it's, it's very it's interesting. Hard work, yeah. It's hard work yeah, yeah. With, with kids like that. Mm-hmm. And I hope I wasn't overly simplistic. Your last question was so important, something I've really struggled with in terms of mm-hmm. I've seen how helpful it could be to understand certain things. Mm-hmm. I also felt that, gee, I've seen people change without understanding all of what went right. you know, on. Not that right. we could ever understand all that went on. Right. But like and the reason in case I, yeah, 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 I'm sorry. The, re- the, reason, the reason I asked, and we really do have to finish. I know we could go oh, on and on. Oh, good You are going to come back. You are going to come back. Okay. The reason I ask is because just about everybody that I work with, we do go back and we look look at the patterns. We look at what brought them there. But the clients who refuse, refuse to go there, refuse to see it, want to deny that the childhood is responsible for their issues. Those people don't move. The needle doesn't move at all. I totally agree. What you just brought up, I totally agree. If If you're denying everything, see what I was talking about, sometimes people not feeling things went on, but they weren't sure, but they're Mm -hmm. able to move ahead. But if you're denying that, that makes it much more difficult. See, that's why uh, that you just clarified for me, uh, certainly, uh, that would make it much more difficult. But, like, right. to get the past. And, you know, understanding the past doesn't mean you're blaming the past. Understanding means that right. it's giving you insights to move ahead on that. Yes. Oh, that whole topic, we could, I'm glad you then clarified that because, <laughs> uh, in, in that regard, because that's different from someone not totally understanding all that may have gone on. But right. not really denying it. Denial. Versus, right. uh, yeah, what you bring up is they're shutting off part of their, I, I would say, both their cognitive and emotional life. Right, uh, exactly. In, in that regard. Right. So, so okay, so um, we're talking about your book today, Tenacity in Children, Nurturing the Seven Instincts, Instincts for Lifetime Success. And, um, you know, I... I recommend this to all parents. This is so important. This is the the fundamentals of how to raise a resilient child. Um, so if you want step-by-step, step, here it is. So uh, where is this book available? Uh, I, I just tell everyone <laughs> the old thing, go to Amazon, uh, and it's uh, just, uh, you know, t- just type in tenacity in, in uh, children uh, okay. in that regard. I mean, I'm sure uh, bookstores would have it uh, also. Mm-hmm. But now I, I think during this past year, especially with the pandemic, most people have gone uh, to Amazon. But it's readily available, uh, you know, uh, on okay. Amazon. Okay. And I regard. do the same so that, thing with my books. It's like, just go to Amazon. You know, (laughs) (laughs) I just find it so much easier to to tell people, uh, you know, that it's uh, especially if you have Amazon Prime, you don't have to pay for postage. We get get shipments every day, every single day. We have something coming. So, (laughs) oh yes, I think we should get paid by Amazon for the advertisement we just gave. Okay, I know we should. We should. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Okay. So, um, do you have a website? Yes. Oh, yeah. And, and actually, uh, the last article and the one coming out within a few days is on compassionate empathy. We're summarizing some parts of the book. It's just www.drdrrobert.com. 
robertbrooks.com. So my name, Dr. robertbrooks.com. And there are a lot of articles there. I've been writing monthly articles for like 20 years now. So many of the things we talked about are there. And the next few will also be about the new book to summarize some aspects of it. Okay. Well, I will be back in touch with you because we only got through half of my flag Three. that I have in the book. <laughs> so and I would love lot. to talk to you about some of your, your last question, or, or, you know, the question or yeah. comment about denying parts, you know, your past. Right, uh, right. Well, I'm going to call you. I'm okay. going to call you. Well, this but has later. been delightful, Randy. <laughs> really delightful. Uh, I, I so enjoyed being on, and I look forward to a return visit. Thank you. And oh, yes. I see we share many common uh, interests. So thank yes, you so absolutely. much for having me on. You are welcome. Thank you for being a wonderful guest. We'll be back. You'll be back. He'll be back. Okay, Randy. Thank, <laughs> okay, thank a, you so much. Have a great day. Bye-bye. You too. Bye. Bye. So we are out of time, but if you have any comments or questions about today's show, you can email me at loveyourlife@randyfine.com. Remember, Randy is R-A-N-D-I, randyfine.com. May joy and serenity always be yours. Goodbye. We hope you enjoyed today's show. Visit randyfine.com, R-A-N-D-I-F-I-N-E.com, and be sure to sign up to receive updates on the latest blog posts, events, and upcoming shows. Thank you for listening.